Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, his church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. In 2007, the Gallup organization did a survey all around the world, and they asked people all around the world, do you have a sense of purpose and meaning in your life? And the country where the most people said, yeah, I have a sense of purpose in my life, the number one country in the world, it was Liberia. And it was not because everything was going great in Liberia, they were in the middle of a war. But in order to survive, they had to commit ferociously to each other. That was David Brooks to start you thinking well as we get this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Line started on Faith Radio. Thank you for carving out some time to join us again. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe Lyons. And Gabe, I know you get excited about a lot of the talks we share on Q Ideas every week, but this one I know you're really excited about. Tell us why. We're talking about a topic that, man, it has occupied so much of my time over the last few years of thinking about this. And it was so great to finally have David Brooks, who's an op-ed columnist with the New York Times, an amazing best-selling author, really address it. And the topic was called Cultivating Virtue. So the idea of virtue, it, it takes me back to William Wilberforce. I mean, he, he was one of the, the great leaders of the abolition movement in the British Empire. And when you go back in his life, you realize he had these two great objects. That's what he called them. Two great objects, essentially these two callings he felt God had put on him. And this is what he was going to dedicate his life to. And many of us know about the one, which was the abolition of slavery. But it's the second one where he he actually said, I want to reform the morals. I want to reform the manners of English society. And it was the idea that I want to cultivate virtue. I want to see virtue become in vogue again. I want temperance. I want want people who who live with with self-control, with compassion and generosity with love and charity and justice. Like, I want a society that reflects that. Well, now in 2018, the question is, do we have virtue in our society anymore? Do people even know what the virtues are? Do we understand why it would matter if we cultivated virtue in our own lives, in our own hearts? And what would that then lead us to be doing? And so David Brooks addresses this in an incredible talk called Cultivating Virtue and and really comes out of the pages of his book he wrote, The Road to Character a book that was a New York Times bestselling book, but really started to work through this idea of what are the kinds of people we want to become and how do we become those kinds of people? What are the kind of life commitments we need to make, the choices that we need to make if we're going to be a people that's virtuous? And so in these 18 minutes, I just want you to sit back. If you have a journal nearby, if you have something to write on, I promise you, you're going to make some notes. If you want to just pull up notes on your phone or whatever, you're going to want to take a few notes here and go back and reflect on this because David's going to kind of speak to all of us about the state of our society, about the transience that we're experiencing, about some of the downsides of that, but then inspire and encourage us about how we might think about it. He jumps around a lot. There's a lot of different topics he touches on in these 18 minutes. And so if you want to go deeper into any of them, we would encourage you to get his book, Road to Character, because in the Road to Character, he describes these things in a much deeper way. But for now, let's go ahead and listen in to David Brooks address this idea of how do we cultivate virtue. 
Now, about 10 years ago, I was um, driving home from work, uh, and my driveway in those days pulled into the house and then around in the backyard. And so I pulled to the side, the backyard, and you could see back on the lawn. And my kids, who were then like 12, 9, and 4, had one of those supermarket plastic balls. And they were kicking it up in the air, and then they were running across the yard to see who could get there first. And they were laughing and tumbling all over each other and giggling. And so I come home from work, and I look through the windshield, and I'm just presented with this tableau of perfect family happiness. And I'm sure every parent has seen it. Sometimes you just look out over your kids, and you just seem so great. I remember that night, the, the summer sun was coming through the trees. For some reason, my, um, my lawn looked perfect. And I just sat there looking at the kids, and reality seemed to spill outside its boundaries. And I just was overwhelmed with a feeling of gratitude for a kind of joy that I couldn't have earned. And when you get those kind of moments, one of the things you want to do is you want to try to earn those moments. You want to try to be worthy of those moments of grace. And so I started thinking, you know, I've achieved way more career success than I ever thought I would. But that kind of joy, I certainly don't deserve. And occasionally, like once a month, I meet somebody and they just radiate an inner light. They have a tranquility and peace that just, I think, you know, I've, I've done okay in the world, but what they have, I don't have that. How do you get that? And so I started writing books on how you get that. And one of the things I did was I found a bunch of people through history who at age 20 were kind of pathetic, but by age 70 were kind of amazing. And so I wanted to know how'd they do that. How do you cultivate virtue, be a better person? And the basic strategy that I came up with in that book was a lot of the people I looked at, they identified their core sin. They said, what's the thing that's weak about me? And then they spent their lives trying to beat back that core sin. And one of the characters in the book was Dwight Eisenhower. When Ike was nine, he uh, wanted to go trick-or-treating, but his mom named Ida wouldn't let him. And he threw a temper tantrum, and he was so mad, he started punching a tree, and he rubbed all the skin off his fingers. Uh, And Ida sent him up to his room, had him cry for an hour, and then came up to bind his wounds. And while she was doing so, she recited a verse from Proverbs, that he that conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. And when he wrote his memoirs 60 years later, Ike said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him that he had a problem. And his problem was his temper. And if he was going to amount to anything in the world, he was going to have to beat the temper. And he spent the rest of his life trying to be a less angry person, a less hate-filled person. And so one of the things he did was he would take out all the people he hated in the middle of the night, and he'd write them down on pieces of paper, and he'd rip up the papers to show how much he was purging his anger. And so the great virtue, as I saw it, was humility. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not even not thinking about yourself. It's radical self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness. It's the ability to step outside yourself and look at yourself and say, what is my strength and what is my weakness? And the great sin in my book that we as a society often suffer from is narcissism and pride, the inability to know where you're really broken. And therefore, you don't have the honesty to actually deal with what you're broken with. And so that was the basic formula. The people I really admired, for them, the internal drama against their own weakness was the central drama of their lives, not something that was going on outside in society and not their worldly climb up to success. And so I wrote the book, and I came out with the book, and, you know, you go around, you talk about it. 
And after the book came out, I noticed one thing about my characters that I didn't realize beforehand. And that was that they had amazing moms. Their dads were eh, but their moms were amazing. And then I came across a study that was done uh, for a bunch of guys who served in World War II. Millions of men got drafted in the army in World War II. And some of them rose and become colonels and majors. And some of them stayed uh, privates. And they wanted to know what correlated with success in World War II. Uh, and they, test, they did this study, and it wasn't IQ. Socioeconomic status didn't really seem to matter. It uh, wasn't even physical courage for these soldiers. The thing that mattered to the guys who had big success in the Army in World War II, the number one correlation was relationship with mother. The guys who had a mom who poured a forth a vast flood of love and joy into them, they had the capacity to pour it into themselves, into their men, and they became good officers. And so I was thinking along those lines about the characters I'd written about, and one of the things I realized was they had these great moms, but they also had the ability to embed themselves, to plant themselves. We put a lot of emphasis on our culture and being free and moving around, but they had the amazing ability to plant themselves down. And so one of my characters was a great woman named Dorothy Day. And Dorothy Day was the sort of young woman, she lived about 100 years ago, odd, so. And she, when she read novels, she didn't just read the novels. She like, became like the characters she was reading about. Uh, and unfortunately, she read a lot of Dostoevsky. So she was drinking a lot, she was carousing about, hanging around with lowlifes, two suicide attempts, two abortions. And her life was basically a fragmented mess. Her moment of change, her moment of agency came when she gave birth to her daughter. She was about 30, single mom, and she, she wrote an account of what it's like to give birth. And at the end of her essay, she, she wrote this paragraph. If I had sculpted the greatest sculpture, composed the greatest symphony, or written the greatest novel, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. With the birth of my daughter came a vast flood of love and joy and I felt within myself the need to worship and to adore. And with that moment, she said, who do I thank for all this gratitude? And at that moment, she found God. Over the next couple of years, she became a Catholic. She started a newspaper called The Catholic Worker, a radical newspaper uh, in New York. And then she spent the next 60 years not only serving the poor, but living with the poor, a life of poverty serving upward to the homeless, to the needy, uh, and often to the mentally unstable. And so she had an ability to plant herself, to commit herself. And so I came to realize that the thing my characters had, the things that may, transferred them from being kind of pathetic to kind of amazing, was the ability to make commitments. And I came to think about it, I think a lot of us in our lives, we make four big commitments. We make a commitment to a spouse and a family, to a vocation, to our job, to a philosophy or faith, and to our communities and friends. And when you think about it, the fulfillment of our lives depends on how well we choose the things to commit to and then execute upon those commitments. And I came to think that in the book, I thought that cultivating virtue is all within, but I came to think it's, it's without. It's how we relate to others and whether we're solidly committed. And so one of the things that commitment does is it gives you your sense of identity. If I introduce myself to you at a party, I'm going I'm to really start talking about what I'm committed to, and you're going to the same. 
That's your sense of identity. It gives you your sense of purpose and meaning. Uh, in 2007, the Gallup organization did a survey all around the world. And they asked people all around the world, do you have a sense of purpose and meaning in your life? And the country where the most people said, yeah, I have a sense of purpose in my life, the number one country in the world, it was Liberia. And it was not because everything was going great in Liberia. They were in the middle of a war. But in order to survive, they had to commit ferociously to each other. And the country where the least number of people said they had a sense of purpose and meaning in their life was the Netherlands, which is actually a pretty great and pleasant country to be in. And so that sense of commitment gave people a sense of existential urgency. I'm in it with you. And the third thing a commitment does is it gives you a sense of sanctification. It gives you, it pulls you out of yourself. So sometimes you go into, you start on a commitment just because it's casual, it's easy to do. I, you know, I'm a writer. I, when I was seven, I decided, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, and I knew at that moment I wanted a writer. My joke is that in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. But I've always been a writer. And, you know, you do it for a job. You do it to get some recognition, make some money. But one of the things I do when I write, I have a carpet uh, like the one I'm standing on. And I, I have a terrible memory, so I write everything out in papers. And I, when I'm writing, I lay the papers out on the floor of my rug, and each pile of papers is a paragraph on whatever I'm writing. So I'm, my columns in the newspaper are only 850 words, but I have like 14 piles. And so for me, the process of writing is not typing into the keyboard. The process of me is crawling around on the carpet and laying out my piles. And I get inspired at those moments, and sometimes like that's the best part about my job. And sometimes it's almost like prayer because things are just happening to me. And so in that way, my commitment to writing, it helps you lift you out of yourself to things you didn't know what you were capable of. Those of us who are parents, you know, when you have a kid, you sort of don't really know what's happening. But as the kid matures, as the kid demands, as the kid arouses your love, then it makes you a better person. You think of falling in love, you start dating someone. You may date them because you want somebody to go to the movies with. You may date them because you're physically aroused by them. But the act of falling in love pulls out of you more than you thought you had. There's a great uh, novel named Captain Corelli's Mandolin by a guy named Louis de Bernier. And in the sort of the first third of the novel, there's a guy, an old guy, talking to his daughter about his love for his late wife who had died. And he says this. He says, love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we discovered we were one tree and not two. So think about that. They fall in love, they're young, but then over the course of their lives, really their loves get sanctified because of the demands of marriage, the demands of staying in the commitment. It pulls you out of yourself and makes you better than you were. Now, I happen to think we live in a society that makes it really hard to do commitments. We live in a society that emphasizes freedom, being yourself, being on your own. And what I find, especially people, especially in their 20s, but often through life, they suffer from what I call a telos crisis. They're sort of loosely attached to everything. They don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. They're in a job. They're okay with it. They're in a relationship. They're okay with it. 
They're living in a community, but they're kind of arm's length from it. They're not really deeply committed to those things. And when things go bad and you don't have deep enmeshing commitments, then things really go bad. Nietzsche has a saying, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. He who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know why you're doing it, when the setback comes, then you can handle it. But if you don't know why you're doing it, then you're really in trouble. And I think we have a lot of people who are not enmeshed in commitments who are just sort of loosely connected and they are really in trouble. And I don't blame them for it a bit. We as a society give them no help. One of the things I read just as a matter of interest is commencement speeches. We've all seen in the commencement speeches. They get some highly successful person to give the commencement in which they're supposed to say that career success doesn't really matter. But what they do in a commencement is they give young people the, A, the advice that's typical of our society, but B, it tends to be really crappy advice. People are coming out of college or high school and they're, they don't know what to do with themselves. And so what does the commencement speaker says? Be free, be autonomous, be on your own. And they're like, yeah, freedom is the problem. I want to know what to do with my life. Don't just tell me I'm free. And I want to know where do I go to look for answers and, they, and then we give them this answer, well, you do you. The answers are in yourself. Look to yourself. Follow your passion. They don't have a passion. But we think, oh, it's all inside. And then they say, well, I want to tie myself down. What, do I, what can I really believe in? And they say, oh, it's, the future is limitless. Do whatever you want. In other words, young people come to a society saying, what can I commit to? What can I tie myself down to? What can I dedicate myself with? And we don't even have a language to tell them what to do. We tell them, it's all on you. It's all on your own. And so what, you have to, what I've concluded that you have to do is sort of rebel against society a little. There's been a, a society that's about freedom. You have to rebel a little against it. If the world says to you, celebrate your independence, you say, no, I'm going to celebrate my dependence. You've got to have a different mindset. If the world says to you, celebrate your autonomy, you say, no, I'm going to celebrate relationship." If the world says to you, no, you've always got to act in the active voice, never in the passive voice, you say, no, I'm going to operate in the middle voice, the voice that is about conversing, about listening and receiving. I'm going to be in relationship and not always imposing myself on the world. If the world says to you that society is a contract where we do everything for our self-interest, you say, no, society is a covenant where you and I join together to create a third thing. You don't create a covenant because of your self-interest. You create a covenant to change your identity, to become a different sort of person. If the mar world says march to the beat of your own drummer, you say no. I'm part of a collective, and I'm marching to the beat of the drummer that is covenantal and within all of us. And so to me, we have to become more communal in a society that's become more individualistic. You have to become more emotional in a society that's become too cognitive. And we have to become more moral in a society that's too utilitarian. One of the heroes in my book is a guy who also had a great mom named Augustine. Uh, and Augustine lived like 15, 1,600 years ago in, in North Africa. And he had a mom named Monica who was the helicopter mom to beat all helicopter moms. Uh, and so she, she was telling him like who he could befriend, who he could not befriend, what he could believe, what he couldn't believe, who he could marry, who he couldn't marry. She was all over the guy. And he needed to break free. So he thought, I need to become free and become successful. 
And so he tricked her. He told her he was uh, going to go watch a friend sail on a boat from Africa, North Africa to Italy. Uh, and instead, Augustine snuck on the boat to try to sneak away. And Monica was there on the shore screaming at him. And she wasn't going to be deterred, so she'd get on the next boat, and she tracked him down in Africa. And so they had a contentious relationship with, with Augustine always trying to break free, not only free from her, but free from her Christian faith and free from everybody else. And for a while, it seemed to work for him. He got into a great college, and he became a very successful rhetorician, which is sort of like being a lawyer. And he was rising up in the social sphere. And yet, the higher he got, the more unhappy he realized he was. And he's typical of something I think happens to a lot of us. When we're young, we think we're climbing one mountain that we think, oh, that's our mountain, career success, identity, ego, fame. That's my mountain. And then something happens in life and we either get knocked off the mountain or we achieve the mountain and it's not satisfying or we suffer the death of a, a spouse or something terrible and we're tossed in the valley. And in the valley, we realize, you know, that mountain was not my actual mountain. I've got a second mountain and it's a bigger mountain and it's a spiritual mountain. And that was really the mountain I was meant to climb all along. And Augustine realized that and he became a Christian. He became a good person really for the first time. And he, his mom said to him, you know, all my life I've wanted you to be a certain sort of person. That's why I've been hounding you. And you've become that. And so my work here is done. I'm ready to go. And they had a final conversation that Augustine describes in his book called Confessions. And there's a long sentence in there, and he repeats one word. And that word is hushed. He said the sound of the birds was hushed. The sound of the air was hushed. Our voices were hushed. And he repeats it. Hushed, hushed, hushed. And I think that's the tranquility and peace and shalom that God wants us to have when we're truly committed. Thank you very much. I'm sure you got a lot of ideas just listening to David. He's so articulate, funny but also just piercing, right? Just makes you think about your own life. What, what are the commitments you're making? How are you living your life? Who are you spending time with? Who is your community? How are you wanting to live your life? And in many ways, inspiring us to be intentional about these things, not to just let life happen to us, but to actually say, no, I'm going to choose to live my life a certain way because I know if I live my life a certain way, it will produce the kind of fruit, the kind of harvest that I want to see all around me in my relationships, my friendships, my city, my community, my workplaces. And so I hope you'll take away for you how you might apply just one thing that you heard today. Again, his book, The Road to Character, goes deeper into a lot of these different ideas. My, one of my favorite parts of that book is where he talks about the eulogy virtues. Uh, and and he, he describes those and contrasts them with what he also describes as the resume virtues and how so much of our world today is pursuing these resume virtues, things that make you look good on paper, make you appear well. But what you're really after in life is the eulogy virtues. What is it that you want people to say at your funeral about who you were, about what you cared about, about how you lived your life? And if we can all think in that way, I know it can feel a bit morbid, but if we can think about how do I want that future to look and how can I make decisions now that help shape my own life in that way and, and make sure I'm being intentional about forming myself because we all know the world's forming us, culture's forming us, everything we're listening to and consuming is forming us. It takes an intentionality that Christians ought to have 
to ensure we're forming ourselves, renewing our minds, that we're letting Scripture do that, that we're letting our community experience with, within the church do that, that we're actually intentionally shaping who we are so that we do become the kind of people that not only say and claim to follow Jesus, but we actually look different. We live counterculturally, and then we can invite other people into it. So I invite you to think about that. What is that going to look like for your life? What's it going to look like for your community of friendships? What's it going to look like in your workplace? And let's try to do a better job this week of applying that and cultivating virtue all around us. Exactly. And Gabe, I want to take a moment to encourage our listeners, if they want to spend more time on topics like this and others that they hear every week on Q Ideas, to head over and become a subscriber to Q Media at QIdeas.org. Hours of great talks, documentaries, podcasts, and other curated content to challenge and encourage you to think well and advance good. You can subscribe at QIdeas.org. Also, even though it's still November, April will be here soon enough. And so will Q2020 in Nashville, April 22nd through the 24th. And Gabe, for our listeners who've never attended our annual Q conference, what can they expect? Talks like what you just heard are all part of the format. We have over 35 topics addressed, multiple presenters, many you would not have heard of because they're experts in their field, but they're not necessarily popular speakers, but we go get them. We recruit them. We invite them to come. And sometimes at Q, it's the first time on a public stage describing for you as leaders how we can think well about a particular topic or an area. We try to do this in such a way, too, that it's not only about education and content, but we are talking about things like David talked about today. What does it mean to form ourselves? Spiritual formation is critical. So we can't just think about culture out there and our callings without thinking about how are we cultivating our hearts and who we are. And so there's this great tension at Q where we're dealing with the external issues, the cultural issues, the social issues, while at the same time saying, let's look inward. Let's ensure we're becoming the kinds of people that are worthy of carrying out the calling that God's put on us. And let's do that in a way that honors him. It will be here before you know it, Q2020. Learn more at qideas.org slash 2020. That's qideas.org slash 2020. Thanks again for listening. Hope you join us next week for another Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.